Once again, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to be here this morning. appreciate the invitation that was extended by your elders to come and to spend this week together. Lisa and I have at, had an absolute blast together with you guys. Very encouraged by the work you're doing here at this place. And certainly looking forward to the future and seeing great things for you guys too. We've been embarking on a study I've called Blind to the Blaze. And that has been our topic since Friday night. And um, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, we've been using kind of as a text scripture every evening, Romans 15 and verse number 4. It says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and hope of the scriptures, or <laughs> we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And it is a blessing to spend some time in the Old Testament. I appreciate you guys' willingness to, to take a look at some of these Old Testament stories. And one of the things I want from the week is I want you to know the Old Testament stories. I want you to be familiar with them. But secondly... I, won't, I think there's lessons we can take from them that will help us in our everyday life, and I certainly want to do that again. We're on part three of Blind to the Blaze this morning. If you've not been able to be with us, we're going to give you a little bit of a review uh, so you can kind of catch up. You don't get the full scope of, of those sermons. We're not going to re-preach them, but we want, I want to give you kind of where we're at in the story. We opened up the story in 1 Kings 19 where uh, Elijah, there's two characters that we're talking about, Elijah and Elisha. Elisha is actually the thrust of our story, but Elijah is a prophet of God serving in the same general time frame. Sometimes it's easy for people to get those individuals confused, but it's actually two separate individuals in Scripture. And Elisha, uh, Elijah, excuse me, is in a cave, and Elijah is moaning and complaining, saying, I'm the only faithful one. You might as well take my life. I, you know, uh, I just don't know what I'm going to do from here. And God says, there are 7,000 faithful men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And they need a prophet. You need to go do your work as a prophet and you need to anoint Elisha to be a prophet as well. So Elisha is uh, uh, ultimately anointed or appointed to be a prophet in this, uh, to God. First Kings chapter 19 and verse number 16. Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So he goes and he finds Elisha. Elisha's farming. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. He's out plowing a field. And uh, he goes to him and says, God's called you to be a prophet to his people. And we find that Elisha follows Elijah. And his job was to minister to Elijah. He was to be mentored by Elijah, to, to learn how to be a prophet, etc. And he follows after Elijah. But then he says, give me just a few seconds. Let me go say bye to my folks, my parents, and I'm going to go do that. And when I go do that, we find out he was not only called to be a prophet, but he's called to be a committed prophet. He was called to be committed to the work that he's called to do. And he, he goes back to his parents to say bye, and, and he's boiling the oxen. He's having a barbecue. He's, he's no longer going back to farming. He's through farming. He's going to be a prophet of God. And not only that, if you'll notice, he not only slew the oxen, but he slew the instruments of the oxen. Not slew them, but he, he took the, destroyed the instruments of the oxen as well. And so he was not planning on going back to farming. He was committed to what it was that he was called to do, and that was to be a prophet of God. And not only was he called to be a prophet and called to be a committed prophet, but he's called to be a committed and present prophet. He was supposed to be present and accounted for. And you remember how in chapter 2 of 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, Elijah would say, I'm going to go up here to Bethel. You stay right here. And he said, I'm not leaving your side. And he said, well, I'm going to go up here to Jericho. And the whole chapter is full of those. I'm going to go. He said, I'm not leaving your side. 
And Elijah at some point in time crosses this river, takes his mantle, strikes the water, the waters part, and, and they walk across on dry ground. They get a little further down the road, and Elijah looks to Elisha, and he says, what would you like me to do for you? And he said, you remember that part in the waters thing? I'd like two of those. I'd like the ability to do that. And he said, if you're present and accounted for, when I'm taken up from you, you'll have a double portion of my spirit upon you. And that is exactly what happened in chapter 2. Ultimately, uh, Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind into heaven and his mantle falls. It comes to Elisha. Elisha is now the prophet of God for the, for the people of God. And, and he goes to work. And we started off last night with that story in 2 Kings chapter 2. We started off with the fact that there is Elisha. He's taken the mantle. He's at the banks of the river Jordan. He's rent his clothes in two pieces. He is, he's... He's essentially sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. He's in grief. He is saddened over the fact that his mentor's gone. Elijah is one of those two individuals mentioned in Scripture that didn't see death. They were just translated. They just went up into heaven and didn't have to see death. Well, there he is in grief. I've lost my mentor. I've lost this person that means a lot to me. And uh, what does he do? And that's where we started last night was he went to work. He went back to work being a prophet of God. He did what it was he was called to do. He was committed to it. And even during bad times, he held to the commitment that he had made. He didn't get into the time of bad times and say, well, you know, I made a commitment, but now I wasn't expecting bad times. I'm going to get out. And we talked about last evening how important it is for us to be able to see things through an eye of faith and, and us to spiritually discern things. And we may go through difficult times and bad times and struggles, etc. But we need to keep the mission in front of us that we've been committed to do. We walked through some of the early stories of the woman with empty vessels, the Shunammite woman, the deadly pottage, 20 loaves of barley and corn for 100 men. We talked a little bit about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, the floating axe head. And then last evening we talked about 2 Kings chapter 6. And 2 Kings chapter 6 was where... Uh, the king of Syria was uh, saying, somebody's working against me here. Now, everything I do, it seems like Israel knows, the king of Israel knows what I'm thinking. And they said, well, he's got a prophet of God. His name's Elisha. And he said, where is this guy? He's in Dothan. So he, we're going to Dothan. He surrounds the city with chariots and horsemen and all that. And Elisha's in his house one morning, got a servant. Servant looks out the blinds and, and looks out there and says, we're surrounded. And he said... Don't worry about it. Fear not, he said. We're, we're okay. And you know the servant's got to be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. We are surrounded. We've got a problem that's, that's taking place. And he said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see what's happening here. And his eyes were open. He saw a mountain full of chariots and horsemen, all that surrounding Elisha. There was nothing going to happen to Elisha. Elisha was protected by God in that situation. But his eyes were open that he could see spiritually what was taking place, that he could see spiritual warfare we talked about last night that you and I have to spiritually discern things. There are only some things that we can understand through spiritual discernment. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord has to be interpreted through the prism of an eye of faith. It's very difficult for us to understand those kind of things in the flesh. And in fact, it's impossible for us to understand those things in the flesh. But it, the importance of spiritually discerning, open our eyes up and recognize the fact there is spiritual warfare that's going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, powers of darkness, etc. There is a spiritual warfare that's taking place. And we need to be mature enough as Christians to open our eyes and see what's happening spiritually behind the things. Sometimes it's very easy for us to get caught up in what we're hearing or the obstacles in front of us. And, and we hear what somebody says. But what we need to do is be able to look beyond the problem and see God's answer to the problem. We need to be able 
able to look deeper into the situation. And we talked about that last night. I don't want to re-preach it to you. But 2 Kings chapter 17, he was surrounded by uh, chariots and horsemen. And, and that servant began to understand there was a world he didn't understand. There was a world he was not seeing. And I want you to be able to mature as Christians and see that there are things happening, spiritually speaking. And we need to recognize those things and learn how to make decisions based on those things. Then we bring it up to where we're at currently in the story. Uh, Elisha is told the young man to open his eyes or prayed to God that this young man would open his eyes and see the, what was really happening in this situation. And his eyes were open. He saw this, the chariots and horsemen of flaming fire. And, and here, a great battle is won. They, they're surrounded by Syria and the guy's going, how are we going to win this? You know, we're surrounded. We see obstacles. And Elisha said, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And that army was struck with blindness. God was working. There was a spiritual realm that was taking place. That army was struck with blindness. They ultimately took that army and they brought them before the king of Israel. And you would think if these are your enemies and, and you've you know, this blind army scattered around trying to figure out how to fight a battle and you bring them into the king of Israel, you would think the natural thing would be to do, let's kill them. Let's, let's, let's take their lives. But instead, the instruction was given by Elisha, feed them. Feed the army. And you know, 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 23, that killed them with kindness or loving your enemies type philosophy changed the way Syria dealt with Israel from that point on. 2 Kings 6 says he prepared great provision for them and when they had eaten and drunk he sent them away and they went to their master so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. One of the ways he fought the battle was he used what God had told him to do to kill them with kindness, to, to feed them, to care for them. That's not what we do in the flesh. That's not natural for us in the flesh but it's what God told them to do because they were fighting a spiritual warfare. We keep going in the story. There's a famine we read about in 2 Kings and even to the point that women were eating their own children. In chapter 8, Elisha prophesies that there's going to be plenty. The famine had been so great, but now all of a sudden there's, there's going to be plenty. And really within a 24-hour period of time, all of a sudden they had more corn than they could do. God again working miracles. Uh, Jezebel was thrown down and the dogs licked the bloods involved in this story. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 13 and we're nearing the end of Elisha's life. And this is part of what I want to talk to you about this morning as well. Let's begin at verse number 14 of 2 Kings chapter 13. Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness whereof he died. And Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. Elisha put his hand upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. He smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth, or old English term meaning he was mad. He was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas thou, now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Now I'm going to try to move that from the King James for just a moment. Give you a little bit of what's taking place. He basically, the, uh, Elisha's sickened to death. Now he's not dead yet. He's just sick. He's fixing to die. 
He's sick with the sickness he's going to die of. And the king of Israel comes to see him. Now, the king of Israel really was a wicked king. He was a, there's a difference between a wicked king and maybe just a total evil king. This guy recognized the importance of, of what Elisha did as a prophet of God. So he wasn't totally evil, but he wasn't a good king. But he did come visit the prophet. He said, we're in trouble if the prophet of God's going to die on me here. You know, because this is the guy that's been directing our steps. This is the guy that's tell, been telling me to go this way or go into battle here. And he's the guy that's been helping us win these battles. And we've got a problem. Elisha's sick. So he goes and visits him. Elisha's in the hospital bed and the king comes to him. And Elisha said, what do you have in your hand? He said, a bow and arrow. You know, he said, take your bow. He said, take a Take an arrow, put it inside your bow. He said, come over here. And he put his hands on the king's hands and he pointed toward the east. And you guys can forgive me if, I, if I'm turned around here, but I'm in a strange place. But I'm going to guess that's north. Everybody, yes, generally speaking, that would be east. Everybody with me? Let's assume for just a moment we're in the hospital room. And Elisha's got his hands on the king's hands. They point out the east side window. And they, they would turn this direction to the east, open up the window, and shoot an arrow out of it. And basically, in their culture, that was like drawing the line in the sand that said, we're going to battle against those people to the east, which was Syria. And we're, we're going to battle, and we're going to win that battle. And the prophet of God is telling the king, that's your enemy. And that's the person we're going to destroy, except I need to be pointing this direction. That's your enemy. That's the person you're going to destroy. And he said, take some boat or take some arrows. And he did. And he said, shoot them in the ground. And he shot three arrows in the ground. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you and I, but generally speaking, we could look at their culture. And basically, that was their defining. He's saying to the king, you put your mark in the sand and say, this is what we're going to do. You're making your affirmation that you're going to win this battle. So he takes three arrows and he just kind of shoots three arrows in the ground and and the phrase says, and he stayed. He just stopped. And, the, and Elisha was upset. Elisha's mad. He said, what are you doing? He said, you, you've got a quiver full of arrows and you give me three arrows in the ground. You could have given me five arrows, six arrows, seven arrows in the ground. But you didn't because you didn't care. You just kind of shot arrows in the ground. You really didn't care about winning a battle. And he was not happy with him. Keep Reading in the story in 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 20, Elisha ultimately dies. Just want you to notice that when Elisha died, they buried him and the bands of the Moabites invaded the land in the coming end of the year. It came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. When the man was let down, he touched the bones of Elisha and he revived and stood up on his feet. After Elisha was dead, his bones had power. You want to talk about a guy that was influencing things. You want to talk about a guy that was a powerful force for Israel. This is a guy that even after he's dead, his bones are in the grave. And they, put, they try to put somebody else in the sepulcher with him. And he raises that guy from the dead. That's Elisha. That's the story of Elisha. Elisha is now dead. And I want to take some lessons from this. I want to review very quickly lessons we've taken the last couple of nights. You can be used of any background. We talked about the fact that Elisha was a farmer, and I'm not making fun of farming. Most of us come from agricultural backgrounds. Nothing wrong with being a farmer, but I'm just saying he's not a doctorate. He's not a whatever. He's not some brain surgeon. He's not a NASA astronaut. You don't have to be something special, quote-unquote, to be in the kingdom of God. And God used people from all different backgrounds, from farmer, fisherman, carpenter, physician, tent makers, persecutors, slaves. God can use you in his kingdom. You'll turn your heart to him. 
The second thing we talked about is God's commit, called us to be committed to his cause. That he counts us faithful, putting me into the ministry. Are you counted faithful? Are you all in? And that was our appeal on Friday night to being all in. You can't be half all in. You can't be a quarter all in. You can't be a all in but until things don't go right. That's not all in. All in is all in. And our appeal to you is that God's called you. If you've taken that vow, if you've taken that commitment to Christ's mantle and you said, I'm serving in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, are you all in with that commitment? And then are you all in and present? Are you present and accounted for? You know, Elisha would not leave Elijah's side. And we talked about how important it is to be present. We talked about fathers and mothers. It's important as a father to be present. Raising your kids. Be involved in your kids' lives. Moms being present. Husbands and wives being present. Being present at church. Present is important. Just want you to spend some time thinking about how important it is to be present at things. And we talked about the scripture, love the brotherhood. It solves a lot of problems if we have that kind of love one toward another. We want to be together. We want to help each other. We want to be present and accounted for. Last night we talked about not losing faith during bad times. Um, that these individuals there in 2 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to, he said that he was thanking God for their patience and faith in their persecutions. Even when they were going through bad times, they had faith in God. Even when they saw negative things happening, they were still faithful to God in their persecutions. And we're going to go through bad times in our life. And can we be the kind of people God wants us to be even when we're going through difficulty and trial? We talked about the fact we're practicing three times a week for those bad times. Um, Mark chapter 6 and verse number 11, Jesus even told his disciples, you go preach the gospel in a city. If they reject it, knock the dust off your feet, go to the next city. Don't get discouraged by lack of success or don't get discouraged because it feels like you're beating your head against the wall. Don't get discouraged because you're going through a bad time. Keep pressing, keep moving, keep walking, keep doing. Don't give up. We talked about walking by faith and not by sight. That we ought to be able to see the, not the mountain around us or the obstacle around us, but we ought to be able to see the flaming chariots and horsemen. We ought to be able to see God working in our life. And a lot of times we're blind to the blaze because we're not spiritually discerning things. And we talk how important that is that we walk through an eye of faith because some things are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 14. And I want to tell you there are things in your life you need to spiritually discern. Romans 8 and 31, we talked about the fact that if God's for us, who can be against us? There's more on our side than on their side. What side do you want to be on? You want to be on the side of the... The king of Syria, the, where, the, where the army goes blind? Or do you want to be on the side that's got flaming chariots and horsemen around them that's, that's going to win the spiritual battle when it's over? And I'll tell you what side I want. I want God's side is the side I want. We talked about that last night. There's some lessons I want, to take, want you to take with you this morning from the end of this story. And that is, number one, love your enemies. You're going to recognize this theme. But you know, instead of killing the Syrian army, you know what they did? They fed them. They brought them in and fed them. They killed them with kindness. They loved them. That's contrary to our flesh. It's contrary to our nature. If somebody does wrong to us or is an enemy to us, whatever, what we do is we want to hurt them back or we want to retaliate or we want to do something. I want to encourage you as Christian people to not live in that world. To live in the world that says we love our enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. I think you recognize the message. It's a message of Christ. Love your enemies. And that's difficult for us to do. It's not a fleshly thing. It's a spiritually discerning thing. The flesh says there's an obstacle. We've got to defeat the, the army. The spirit says love them 
God will take care of that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. The second thing I want you to walk away with this morning from this story is to serve God with zeal. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 23 says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. And basically this comes from the story of Elisha to where he's sick in the hospital and, and the king, Joash, comes to visit him and he says, which way are you pointing your arrow? And he points it out the east and he says, uh, you know, shoot some arrows in the ground. He shoots three, but he could have shot six, that kind of thing. The reality is the king didn't really care that much. He's just kind of nonchalant about it. You told me to shoot arrows in the ground. I'm shooting arrows in the ground. And he said, because you only shot three arrows in the ground, you're going to win three battles against Syria. You could have consumed them. You could have shot your entire quiver full of arrows in the ground. But you didn't because you didn't care. And he was mad at him. I want to encourage you to care. To serve God with zeal. Lisa and I, those of you that know us will know this story, but some of you may not know us very well. And Lisa and I had four daughters, and we had an older daughter that was about four when we had twins. And then we had twins. We thought we were through, and we had an exciting child named Hannah that came into our life. And it was kind of like having triplets for a while. We had them less than two years old, three kids all at one time. We went from having a child that didn't change our life much to a station wagon. You know what I mean? We, we, we just grew. We were moving every time we went somewhere. I think Justin and Tara have figured some of that out. Uh, lately as well every time they go somewhere it's just lugging a lot of stuff with them and that kind of thing we owe a lot of favors to a lot of people that helped us unload the car every time we showed up somewhere you know and and just great it was great times in our life but we've raised those girls and and where we're at in our stage of life now is Lisa and I have just recently become empty nesters the dog has died the last daughter got married the last daughter graduated college uh, we actually think we may see a financial increase in our monthly take-home pay because we're not that big sucking vacuum sound that takes finances out of our life is gone all of a sudden. And it's pretty neat to be in the stage of life. And one of the things I want to encourage you, whatever stage you're in, enjoy it. They're, they're great stages. We loved raising our kids. We loved the college age. We loved teenagers. We loved it, but we're going to love this too. And we're going to enjoy this for a little while. But let me tell you a little bit about our youngest daughter, Hannah. Hannah, and I'm, this is just us right here, okay? This goes nowhere else, okay? Y'all promise? Hannah is probably the smartest child that Lisa gave birth to. And I'm not saying the others are not smart. They're all smart children, but Hannah has got one of those minds, if you know what I'm talking about, that's just extremely bright. Been that way since a little kid. But I will tell you, Hannah's got a streak called a lazy streak. And it's just a challenge for Hannah to, to get things done. She loves TV and she loves commercials and she loves anything she put in front of her except for maybe a school book. You know what I mean? But extremely bright child. Well, somewhere along the high school age, we were trying to get her at, through an entrance exam into college, which is a pretty important thing for moms and dads. We wanted to see her get into college and excel, etc. And I will say, I'll tell you the end of the story. She graduated from college and she got her first school teaching job this year. And, and Hannah's grown up and a million good things about that. But at the time, she was, had a lazy streak. Sharp girl, lazy streak. Y'all got it, right? Uh, she came home one day. I looked at a piece of paper on the counter and, and the, the paper basically said a C or something in math. 
And I looked at her and said, why a seat? I mean, we, we're taking you to tutoring. You know, I mean, we're getting extra work. At, and I'm not talking about a child that can't or didn't or whatever. I'm talking bright child. Y'all got it. And I just looked at her and I said, what's the deal? And she said, oh, it is what it is. And I said, uh-uh. That's not going to work. And then she did the girl thing and started crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, because you're yelling at me. And I said, oh, no, I'm not yelling at you. But now I am. I'm not recommending this as a parenting technique, I promise you. I'm not saying go do this. I'm saying at this time in this girl's life, at 17 years old, trying to get into college, smart girl, lazy streak, I felt like she needed something to try to spark her interest. So for the next 30 minutes, she knows what yelling is. We're not generally that way in our house. We don't yell at each other a lot. But I'm telling you that day, once again, not recommended in, not even saying it was my finest moment. I'm just saying it happened that for 30 minutes, she heard a sermon about caring, about yelling. She knows yelling. She knows the difference between when dad's yelling and not yelling. There's never been a question since then. And I tell you, if you went to Hannah today and you asked her, said, do you remember your dad ever yelling at you? She would go, oh, yes, I remember. And, can, and if you asked her, do you remember what the subject matter was about? She would go, oh, yes, I remember very well. It was a very momentous occasion in Hannah's life that she woke up dad, who had been very patient for a long time, but his patience was through. I will tell you that years later I told that story and she came up to me afterwards and she said, Dad, I needed that. She said, thank you. And down deep inside I can tell you as a dad, you go, yes. You know, because I wasn't wanting to hurt her. I love her. I care for her. What she needed was the ability to care. She needed something that said, I care about what I'm doing. She needed some energy behind what she was doing. You don't just walk through life, Hannah acting like you don't care about anything. You don't walk through life. You don't go through school. You don't go through church. You don't go through life and, and just, well, whatever, however, whenever, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't work that way. You're going to start caring about what you're doing. You're, and essentially, you're going to live your life with a purpose. You're going to do it on purpose. And you're going to act like you care about it. And even better than that, I'd rather you care rather than even act like caring. How many of y'all have done that in your Christian life? Whatever, however, whenever. I go to church whenever, however, whenever. I, my father, whenever, however. We just go through life. I want to encourage you today to care. To pay attention to what you're doing. To get some fire in your belly that says, I care about what I'm doing. I care about what our church is doing. I'm going to be involved in our church. I want to be involved in what we're doing because I care about what we're doing. And I care. I pray you care this morning. I want you to look at this verse again in Colossians 3.23. It says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto men and, or as unto God and not unto men. And I want you to look at that verse in a new way. And I want you to see that verse and say, it's a sin if I don't do it that way. If I'm going through life like I don't care, I'm sinning against God. Because God said, whatever I do, I do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. That's what God told me to do. That's the 
attitudes, a persona that I need to put on my life. And too often we walk through life as though life will just happen with no concern about caring about how it happens. You're going to make some extremely big decisions in your life, especially to the young people. You're going to make some decisions on who you marry. You're going to make some decisions on where you go to school, college. You're going to make some decisions on where you go to church. You're going to make decisions. And I want to tell you those are huge decisions. And if you don't care about those decisions, you're going to end up with some results you don't want to have. You better start caring. And I want to encourage you in your Christian walk in, in a million different ways to care about it. And it will change your life if you'll do that. Another thing I want you to notice that we can walk away with this from this story today is that we leave a legacy behind. You know, Elisha was such a powerful prophet of God that even when they put his bones in the tomb, somebody else touched his bones and came alive. That's the legacy this guy left behind. Not only was he a mentor for the children of God, not only did he care for them, not only did he profit for them, not only did he tell them to go to battle over here and over there or whatever, he was that powerful an individual that long after his death, he was still speaking to the children of Israel. I want to encourage you to leave a legacy behind and to be concerned about leaving a legacy behind. I don't know about you all in this part of the country. I know some of your history in this part of the country. But I want to tell you a little bit of ours in our part of the country. There's a guy in our part of the country named Herschel Williams. Some of you may have met Herschel through the years. Herschel died a few years ago. He's 90-something years old when he died. But Herschel Williams was a huge force in the Gulf Coast area. I get to thinking about Herschel very early in my life, in preaching life. I was asked to hold a meeting in Shawnee, Oklahoma. I was 15 years old. And why they asked me, I have no clue. But they asked me to hold a meeting. I'd never held a meeting anywhere. My dad said, before you go hold a meeting in Shawnee, Oklahoma, you're going to go up to the church building and you're going to preach to me because you're not saying anything anywhere else that I don't know what's coming out of your mouth first. So I would go up to the church building and I would preach. My dad would be the only one in the pews. And then when I got finished, he'd go, we ain't saying this. And we, we will say this. And we don't say that. You know, and he'd critique it, that kind of thing. I thank my dad for that. I'll be honest with you. But shortly thereafter, before the Shawnee meeting, I got a knock on the door one night. It was Brother Herschel and Brother Adrian. They were both elders of the church at Baytown. Brother Adrian's still alive, and he's been a great force in our area as well. But Brother Herschel sat there in that living room that night, and he said, Brother Ty, he said, we understand you're going to be holding a meeting in Shawnee, Oklahoma. He said, we kind of thought it would be neat if you came to Baytown and preached for us the meeting you're going to do in Shawnee. It'll give you some practice and that kind of thing. You're kind of near a home crowd. It wasn't my home congregation, but, but it would be kind of near a home crowd. and It would give you some experience that way. And I went over to Baytown. The very first meeting I ever held was in Baytown, Texas with Herschel Williams. Stayed in Herschel Williams' home. And Herschel sitting on the front second pew over here, you know, on the left side of the building. And from that moment, I can tell you, Brother Herschel's been a big friend of mine, a, a huge friend of mine. Um, Brother Herschel's been involved in a lot of church work. I've sat in a lot of meetings through the years with Brother Herschel. A lot of just even leadership type meetings or whatever where everybody's not present, but Brother Herschel's there with a lot of leaders. And I can tell you that Brother Herschel made a difference in those meetings. 
I get to thinking about churches in our part of the country, and without, I, I didn't go through the exact math in my head this morning, but we've got something to the tune of 11 congregations in, in just in the Gulf Coast area. And very quickly, I can look at it and go, the congregation at Baytown started, Brother Herschel was involved in. The congregation at Beaumont started, Brother Herschel was involved in. The congregation at Spring started, Brother Herschel was involved in it. Uh, Pearland, Brother Herschel was involved in it. Lake Jackson, Brother Herschel was involved in it. Um, Channel View, Brother Herschel was involved in it. And I'm probably not through, to be honest with you. He's involved in the starting of Northeast as well. Sat in the meetings. And let me tell you about Brother Herschel. Brother Herschel was the guy that sat in the meetings and said, we can do this. We can do this. He may have been in his 80s, but he'd be the one guy in the room when everybody else is going, well, you know, that's expensive. Or, well, you know, that's difficult. Brother Herschel would go, I think we could do this. Let's make a few phone calls and see what we can make happen. That's Brother Herschel. Brother Herschel has left a huge legacy in our part of the country. Now, don't get me wrong. Brother Herschel didn't do it by himself. Brother Herschel would be the first one to tell you he didn't do it by himself. There was a team of people involved in that process. Well, I'm just saying he led and he left a legacy behind. And now Brother Herschel's gone. We have some of those same leadership type meetings. We're talking about future and what our goals are and that kind of thing. Brother Herschel's not in the room. And I will tell you, it's a different room without Brother Herschel in it. I'm not being critical of anybody that's in the room. I'm just saying it's different without the guy going, we can do this. We can do this. Leave a legacy behind. If I was going to go up into the Oklahoma City area, I'd think about people like John Barris and and I'd think about Jimmy Ramsey and names like that, W.L. Spence, people like that. Some of those names you probably have heard because you've either sung their songs or heard their sermons or seen the work that they've been involved with. I, I've heard it said that Jimmy Ramsey had a goal to have a congregation in Oklahoma within 30 minutes of each other all across the state. That was their goal. That was their vision. That's what they worked toward. And you can look across Oklahoma and you can see Jimmy Ramsey's fingerprint. Not saying he did it by himself, by any stretch. I'm not trying to leave other people out of the picture. I'm just saying he was an influential factor. He left the legacy behind. What I'm asking you today is, what kind of legacy do you leave behind? After you're dead and gone, whose lives are you touching? Whose lives are you still touching? Because you've left the legacy behind. And I want to plead with you, fathers, you're raising children. Mothers, you're raising children. And mothers, you are rocking the babies. And I'll tell you to this congregation, you guys are full of youngsters. God bless you in that. You guys are rocking the future of the church. Sing to those babies. Preach to those babies. Train them. Teach them. There is a huge job to do there. Leave a legacy behind. Great responsibility. What are you doing as a congregation? What are you doing for goals and visions and dreams and hopes? What are your goals? It's a congregation. What kind of work? Do you have a mission for Christ that you want to bring the gospel to the world? What are you doing? And are you going to leave a legacy behind? I think I'm talking to the choir. I think I'm talking to people today that want to leave a legacy behind, that live their life in such a way to do that. But I want to encourage you in that because no man's an island. No man lives alone. The things you do, the decisions you make, it affects things and influences things. Be careful because... Those decisions are huge. They're important. And be careful of those decisions you make in your life. You want to run off to college and go somewhere where there's not a church somewhere or anywhere nearby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you want to marry somebody that's not driven for Christ. 
you want to be involved intimately in, with that kind of intimacy and you want a relationship and you want to be intimate with a person in every way except spiritually intimate, something's going to be challenging in that relationship. I'll tell you right now. I plead with you. Make sure you're making the kind of decisions that leave a legacy behind. And you can do that. You can do that. The other thing I want to encourage you to do in a lesson I think we can take is that we stand in the gap. There's a passage found in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse number 30 that says, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should destroy it, but I found none. I want to encourage you to stand in the gap. That's what Elisha did. If there was ever an overarching message of Elisha's life is he wanted to be a prophet for the people of God. He was the guy that told the king, don't go to battle over here, go over here. He's the guy that created great trouble for the king of Syria because he was being a prophet. He was standing in the gap for the children of Israel. He was doing his job. I'd like you to take on that mantle that says, whatever my part is in the church... It's my part, and I stand here, and I'll fulfill it. I'm going to be responsible to it. I'm going to take care of it. Nobody's going to come ask me, is it done? Because it's going to be done because I'm standing in the gap. I've taken the responsibility. I'm standing in the gap. I'm doing my part in the kingdom, whatever that part is. And I want to encourage you to stand in the gap. Now, I want you to notice the last part of this verse, though. It's very sad. Ezekiel looks out among the people of God. He says, I looked among them for somebody to stand in the gap before me. Then I want you to notice the last phrase. I found none. Now what a sad commentary on the children of God that the prophet of God, Ezekiel, would look out across the people and say, I'm looking for somebody that will stand up for God. Somebody that will do the right thing. Somebody that will stand up and say, I'm going to be the kind of person God wants me to be. I'm standing in His kingdom. I'm working for Him. And then the end conclusion is, but I looked across the crowd and found no one. Absolutely no one. I beg of you this morning that this not be this kind of crowd this morning. I'd like you to be a people that stand in the gap. I'd encourage you this morning to be the kind of person that stands in the gap. Have you made a decision to serve God? Have you made a decision to be in the kingdom of God? Are you standing in the gap? Or do we look across the crowd and find no one? I hope not. I hope we look across the crowd this morning and we see a crowd of people that say, put me in the borders of the kingdom. Give me a job to do. Help me help the team. Help me be a part of that spiritual warfare. I'm going to be praying if nothing else. And I'll be laboring if possible. Anything I can do, I'm going to put my talents to use, my gifts to use. I'm going to use them for the cause of the kingdom. Or do we find no one this morning? The song says, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Are you still looking out at what the world has to offer? Or are you spiritually discerning what God will do for you in your life? What team are you serving on? Are you resolved this morning to be a part of the Lord's team? Or do we look out across the crowd and find no one? I plead with you as we sing this song this morning to make your decision. It's the most important decision you'll ever make to make your decision to be a servant of God. Stand in the gap for God. Care about what it is you're doing. Leave a legacy behind. I think there's some lessons from Elisha that could change your life. Dedicate your family to God this morning. Are you resolved to do that? Won't you come while we stand and sing the song that's been selected?